Don't think I'm totally negative. I do love the Tolvaptin advertisements <laughs> because uh, not the ones not the ones for PKD where with the sort of jungle that they're tearing down, but the PKD advertisements. There's like that one with the bed going over the crevice, and I feel like Indiana Jones, right? I'm like da 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 da, you know. And it's very exciting. And there's a couple others that I like as well. Melanie, you actually read paper journals. <laughs> Every once in a while. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen an advertisement. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to send you a picture. You're going to laugh your head off. Physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm the Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we are discussing Chapter 9, which is a very important chapter to me. During my fellowship, I had the opportunity to write a chapter on sodium homeostasis. And Pat Murray, who was the editor of the chapter, said, I want you to go out and I want you to describe electrolyte-free water clearance. And I had a very loose understanding of it. Like I could run through the formula if you required me, but writing that chapter, I pulled this 1986 article uh, from the American Journal of Medicine. It's uh, Bud Rose wrote this article. And it's interesting. If you look up Bud Rose in PubMed, he has very few publications, right? For somebody who is so profoundly important to nephrology, when I counted, when I was a an early in my residency, I looked him up and he had 12 references. And this is one of them. It's one of the most significant. And my sense is that he didn't say yes very often. Like he had a mission. It was up to date. It was the books. And occasionally he would write an article. And this one from the American Journal of Medicine is where he describes electrolyte free water clearance. And I read that that manuscript over and over again until I knew it forwards and backwards and could run through and understood every step in the derivation for the electrolyte free water clearance. And that was the moment sodium truly crystallized for me. And that the lessons from that manuscript are here in this chapter. And so to me, this is a, a really important chapter. Joe, I remember that article. I still have my original copy of it. It's yellowed. It's frayed. It has got, it's written all over it, but I still keep the original. That, I remembered quite well. And that was a like kind of a life changer to me. It's such a great article. It's such a seminal article. It's, it's just math, right? That's all it is. It's like once you understand what governs the regulation of sodium in the body, and we've kind of been covering that up to now, and we've put all the pieces on the chessboard, get checkmate tonight, where we're going to hopefully, hopefully the listeners will be able to understand this. Let's introduce the crew. JC, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, Juan Carlos Vélez, uh, nephrologist at Oxford Medical Center in New Orleans. Happy to be back. Excellent. 
Melanie? I'm Melanie Honig, and I am at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Med School. How about Roger? Roger Rodby, nephrologist, Rush University Medical Center, Chicago. Josh? Sure, Josh Waitzman. I'm an instructor of nephrology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. And let us say that is a monumental moment. We have two of these tonight. Josh, no longer a fellow. Congratulations. So you're not an inst- you're instructor of Thanks, medicine. Man. You're instructor of nephrology? Instructor of medicine. Instructor okay. of medicine, staff position in the Division of Nephrology and uh, Department of Medicine. I, I had to ask the HR people <laughs> what my actual title was today, and it took them a little while to figure it out, too. Amy? Hi, I'm Amy. I'm from the University of Arizona in Tucson. And Amy, who's on your lap? Oh, it's my little baby. She's one. <laughs> Her name's Fia. Oh, my gosh. Say hi. Did she say anything? Uh, she says mama. <laughs> but she's not going to say anything right now. <laughs> she's just... I think she's actually saying Osmom. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and uh, my name is Leticia Rolon. I'm um, as of today associate professor at UCSF. Yay! Congratulations! So made it onto a tenure track, and uh, so really excited about that at UCSF. Oh, congratulations! That is absolutely awesome. And Anna. I'm Anna Gaddy. I am an assistant professor in the nephrology Yay! division at Medical College in Wisconsin. My first day was today. No longer a fellow. Yeah. I think last time you made me say that because you said by the time this comes out, you will be. But now it's true. Now it is truly, truly <laughs> official. I have insurance through them. So that's real now. <laughs> Joe, can I make a quick comment? Please bring it. What you said about Barton Rose and the number of publications on PubMed is very interesting. I got caught up by that years ago. And I think Melanie commented on that uh, a few episodes back that, you know, you think about textbooks of nephrology, like Schreier's textbook or the Brenner's textbook, you know, those are two scientists who publish an enormous amount of, of original work. But Barton Rose is sort of a unique uh, species or he has the ability to write in an incredible way that has made him one of the most impactful educators in, in nephrology. And, and just because of the way he elegantly writes and puts things together that other uh, scientists have discovered. Yeah, JC, this is like a really key point. There's nothing about being a really good research scientist that makes you a really good teacher or writer. And I feel like this is so baked into the medical education system that we've all grown up in that the people who research the thing are the people who teach it to you, which can work in some situations. But those folks really don't get a lot of like teaching and how to teach or rewards for teaching well. And so I think like seeing someone who's really dedicated to the craft of teaching pull this together, even in this early 1986 paper that turns into the first version of this chapter that turns into this version that we're going to talk about tonight. It's it's a cool evolution to see. Well, and we're talking about Bud Rose and Nigel Top, of course. You're talking about Bud Rose. <laughs> Well, I actually saw something today. I was looking at your Twitter trying to find that picture that you posted, the little flozenator lapel pen, and someone tagged you. I don't really know who they were, but they said they were reading the Burton Rose handbook, and, and they said, if Joel Topped is kidney boy, then Bud Rose was kidney man. And I was like, hmm, yeah, nice. I missed that tweet when it happened a long time ago. That was like a deliberate moment. Like early in my career, I was like, I that's what I want to do. I want to be Bud Rose, right? Like I get that I can't be as great as Bud Rose, as high as he flew, like that was unattainable. But in terms of the model, in the basic blueprint of that career, where I was not going to be a researcher, that I was going to use new technology to teach nephrology, 
That's that. That's the model that I used for my. That is the gold standard. Absolutely. So JC, you know what you said originally, which started this, you know, tribute was about his ability to write and teach, and I mean that's why this podcast. That's why we're doing the podcast out of this book. So I think we all agree, nothing else is like it. Yeah, I think a, a pathology book club podcast would be a little tough. Look at this picture; <laughs> it's so beautiful. Look at the podocytes. Okay, let's let's start. The name of the chapter is okay. the regulation of plasma osmolality. And it starts with stuff we're all super familiar, it says hypo and hyperosmolality can cause serious neurologic symptoms and death. And that the reason it causes symptoms is due to water movement into the brain with hypoosmolality and out of the brain with hyperosmolality. And this boils down to the regulation of sodium, the primary effective osmol in the body and that we regulate it. There are two major factors that regulate it. You have regulation by water intake, which is thirst, and regulation by water excretion, which is governed by ADH and the kidney. Well, Roger, what were you talking? Was it a tweet something where you were saying that, that, that it was the hypothalamus, that the kidney gets all the credit and the hypothalamus well, should take some of it? Oh, that no, that was in our group chat about uh, glaucoma fleckens tweet about do you not trust your yeah, kidneys? Yeah, he had this little- When the med student drinking water. But the, the, the medical student drinking all this water and he's asking why. He says, don't you trust your kidneys? And it isn't, the kidneys is not what determines how much water you drink. It's your thirst mechanism, which is one of the three main things of this chapter. And I thought about, you know, I should correct him, but that only make me look like a big jerk. <laughs> yeah, because he, he says, don't you trust your kidneys? Well, no, it's don't you trust your thirst mechanism? I, I don't think you'd look like a jerk. I think you would look like exactly the kind of person that spurred that. Right. You'd be the, the quintessential be like, yeah, no, 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 right? Exactly. Case resting. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Anybody really- but him. He's too great. Yeah, yeah. he's great. He's too great. Okay, so that's the hypothalamus. And then he has a nice paragraph. He says, let me remind you that we're dealing here with water balance and not sodium balance. And boy, is there anything that we lean into more often over and over again than this difference between water balance and sodium balance? It just seems like this fundamental story that I'm bored talking about it because I've talked about it so many times. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really too bad. There's not like a conversion on the labs when you get the sodium into a water factor like there is for creatinine to GFR. Like it's, it's the thing that just comes up over and over and over again for every hyponatremia or every hypernatremia. It's a water problem, not a salt problem. Salt tabs are not going to get you out of this. Cutting salt is not going to get you out of this. You got to think about what the volume status is. Think about where the water is and, and work with that. But you know what? I still get called about patients who nephrologists have seen, like I just got called the other day, one of my last calls as a fellow was about a patient who was overcorrecting quickly because we just couldn't quite figure out, wasn't just one thing, we just couldn't quite figure it out. So it's it's easy to say and really hard to do. So I think that's the reason that we talk about it so much. I think the name itself of the entity is kind of uh, one of the reasons of the problem because hyponatremia should be called hyperaquaremia, right? That's exactly what it is. But, you know, even patients Google hyponatremia and come telling you, doctor, I'm doing better. I'm needing a lot of salt. And it's just uh, difficult to correct that when the name itself drags the misinterpretation of the entity. I'm going to steal that from you because if I, it's like one of my title slides in the sodium disorders lecture. I say this actually should be called water disorders, but I'm going to call this hyperaquatemia. 
water balance. So we're done with it's not it's water balance, not sodium balance. And he kind of does he does a here's he got an accounting of the losses. And so he he talks about the insensible losses. He does first the insensible skin losses, and then he follows it up with sweat. And so he says that the, the thermal regulation requires that for every milliliter of water that evaporates the skin, it consumes 0.58 kilocalories. And that in a dry, hot climate, you can lose 1.5 liters an hour, which is completely inconceivable to me. Anybody on anything? No, no thoughts about water, skin losses? Yeah, I, I thought this was actually really interesting in skin losses. I actually went back and read like how much volume you can lose from skin losses and how temperature and humidity affect it because I was just curious about this part of it. Um, actually, it's very much temperature dependent and very little humidity dependent. So, for every seven degrees Celsius increase in temperature, you lose twice as much water from your skin. But no matter how much you change the humidity, the amount of water you lose is very minimally affected. So no matter how bad you feel on that like 98% humidity day with a dew point of 70, you're not losing any more water from your skin than you would be at a lower humidity, same temperature day. So I thought that was pretty cool. So you just feel sweatier because the partial pressure differential. Because the yeah, sweat's just not evaporating, right. But the actual amount of water you're losing is the same. And they did this. They just put like a bunch of volunteers. And I don't know who volunteered for this to like step into a box that was cold, warm, warmer and hot. And then just watched how much water came off of them over time. That's super interesting. I hardly ever think about this, um, you know, like in sensible losses or how obligatory water output. But I think this, it would be great to have. And, and if you guys have this, um, you guys could teach me, but uh, for all our ICU patients who develop um, more, you know, critically ill, intubated, uh, how much water is lost also like through the ventilator, all these things I think is critical because uh, so many times we've talked about this before in previous episodes, like how different difficult it could be sometimes to convince people to give water for hypernatremia because they look otherwise like they're quote-unquote third spacing right and so this is something that i wish we just had a better sense of how to calculate um in the critically ill you know it's a, i find it interesting too because i mean we you know we have we have body heat we we generate heat through metabolism and the what did how, how did homer smith say it the the fire of our body's ashes the ashes of our body fires that's just our body fire, obviously implying, you know, that we have this metabolism going on and that therefore we have to have some obligate way to cool ourselves off. And so there is this obligate water loss just through our skin. A liter and a half seems like a lot, but uh, an hour. But I suspect if you're, you know, what if it's 500 mLs an hour? You know, it always amazes me whenever I watch Lawrence of Arabia and see Peter O'Toole who walks in the Sahara for three days straight without any water, realizing that he'd probably be dead in about you know, eight hours. I don't think there's any way he could possibly survive because we need water and we'll die without it. And he has none of it. So this is, this is an interesting topic for me because going back early in my career or as a trainee, I adopted this formula that it's body weight multiplied by seven equals your insensible losses minus water of oxidation. And that came from some sort of derivation that insensible losses is about 12 times your body weight on a day 
and water of oxidation is about five times your weight in a, in a day. So you subtract 12 minus five, you come up with seven. And I would do that. And I would do that as a trainee. I would do that when I would present a patient in terms of the intake and output and the fluid balance on a daily basis. But as years have gone by, and I am on the other side as an attending, having to listen to a patient presented to me from a resident, you know, I just don't hear that anymore. And I don't ask for it anymore, to be honest. If a patient has been in a hospital for seven days and somebody tells me that the patient is eight liters positive, I don't immediately react to say, well, it's probably only four because there are four liters of intensive losses in eight days. You know, that's not my immediate reaction. I only go there when something just doesn't make sense. You know, I try to find a reason to why it's not making sense. But I wonder, I want to ask you guys, is this something that you train and you always no, expect the insensible losses to be reported to you as part of a daily uh, fluid balance? Because I don't do that. Anymore. Well, so my favorite little bit is if you take a look at the, the table 9-1 and you add up a water content of food, water oxidation, and then you compare that to skin, respiratory tract, and stool, they balance out. And this is something that Rose points out. But he, he points out, he's like, these things tend to balance out and you can really just look at the urine because the insensible losses that we don't think about are balanced out by the water we get from normal diet. And that to me is like the easiest way to ignore this. <laughs> and I think, you know, the water of oxidation is probably, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but one of the most underappreciated sources of, of water ever, you know, that's not a, a minimal amount of water. And you don't really think about it, or I didn't think about it for years. It's, you know, carbohydrates is CO2 and water, fats, CO2 and water, proteins, leave some water, and, you know, it has to go somewhere. It's a good point, Roger, because the, the questions that I mentioned don't have to be static. And, you know, the water of oxidation is probably proportional to the catabolism of nutrients on a critically ill patient. So what I said, five multiplied by weight in a different patient could be 10 times multiplied by weight. So, but I like what Joel said, you know, it evens is out, who cares, just move on. You know, it's not gonna matter in your intake and output balance. Well, well, actually, you know, getting to JC's question, do we think about insensibles? And I think that's, you know, what you bring up is probably the, the most important time to think about insensibles is when we're treating hypernatremia and what the typical mistake people make is to not take into account what got them there in the first place. And they figure out some water deficit and some equation and whatever time they want to give. And they don't even take into account the fact that they may still have a liter of fluid loss through heat or diarrhea, another through diarrhea or something else. And uh, that is important in that situation. And to your point, Roger, let's imagine that you calculate some water deficit and they start that rate. Let's say they said the patient needs two liters today and then the serum sodium is the same the next day. Then I'll come in and say, okay, that's their losses. Now you've identified their losses and now on top of that, we need to give something more. Hasn't kept getting worse. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. That's really clever. Yeah. We've that's stopped really progression. Like that a lot. That's a win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you figure it out, then it's not an insensible loss. It's a so, sensible loss. Help me out here. What is insense? I know what the I know what we're using, but where do these terms come from? Insensible and sensible. Does that mean measurable? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up <laughs> because I want to tell you about the wackiest paper ever from 1936. Okay, this is by R. A. McCants and. 
you might be thinking, if you're old like me, you might be thinking, McCants, that name sounds familiar. Isn't that the fictional professor that Mitch Halpern always used as his sort of detective? And that's who this is named after. So McCants did this wacky study in 1936 to measure sweat and salt losses in sweat. And this, I'm going to share the paper with you guys because it is the methods are hysterical because he explains that at King's College Hospital, we don't have a diet kitchen. So my wife very kindly offered to do this for us. And I slept and ate at home and so did two of my other subjects who also stayed at my house during the experiments. Then they had this wacky salt-free diet. And then he created this bizarre tent with some kind of heater and then they stretched sheets around it made kind of like the, a fort like your children might like to make. And they crawled in there and sweated. And then they, I guess, took the sheets and somehow like, like spun them down and like got the salt out of it to figure out how much salt was being lost and how much water was in the sheets and so on. So because of that, perhaps one could call salt sensible losses since you could measure it. I don't know. I mean, if you really, if you if you really want to measure everything, you got to do stool too, and then that gets a little. Yeah, yeah they did. They did stool and urine. They cha- they saved everything, <laughs> and tried to figure out how much water and salt was in only, everything. Only way to do no it. one came to this guy's next party. I guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> did I tell you guys about when I realized I should be a nephrologist when my friend got sick and her husband went and got her like a six pack of Gatorade? And I told her that the way she would know for sure, she was like keeping up as if she would like drink the bottle and then like pee back into the bottle. And that way she could like really measure. <laughs> I hope she kept her bottle straight. Didn't mention stool though. But, you know, I'm glad you bring up uh, Gatorade, Anna, because this is, you know, every time I read about the concentration of, of, of sodium in sweat, I remember uh, Robert Cade and Gatorade and whole story. You know, we have to talk about him. He's a nephrologist, right? This is a podcast about <laughs> renal physiology. And um, it's very interesting. I, I don't know if he made a connection with uh, the concentration of sodium and sweat when he came up with his formula, but ended up pretty close. You know, you if you look at the uh, concentration of, of sodium in a regular Gatorade, it's about 20 milliequivalents per liter. Yeah which is below what is normal in, in sweat. But there's actually a Gatorade premium or a Gatorade boost that you're supposed to drink uh, prior to competition that has double that, so about 35 or 40 milliequivalents per liter, which is pretty close to the average concentration of, of sodium. But it's an interesting topic to me. I, had, I happened to review it years ago and uh, learn about this notion of uh, salty sweaters, how they... Salt concentration and sweat varies tremendously from individual to individual or from at rest uh, to being in competition, obviously heat uh, and all those factors and how the concentration of, of salt and sweat may correspond to the risk of cramping during uh, competitive sports. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, you know, but this whole Gatorade thing is it's really interesting because, you know, you said how much sodium is in there. That, that's nothing. You know, that's absolutely nothing. It's a fourth of a fourth of a gram. I mean, it's 
that's why it's drinkable, though. Well, my point is, is that it's it's very clever because you know it it tastes a little bit funky. There's a little bit of potassium and a little bit of magnesium, so it tastes a little tiny bit medicinal, <laughs> which is very smart. But it's not very much sodium, and to think that someone's going to get in trouble from a sodium bath, I mean, it's an insult to me. It's an insult to the kidney, quite frankly, yeah. to me, that someone's going to get into trouble <laughs> in a sporting event that they actually have to have sodium. And if they're not, they're not well trained because earlier in one of the other podcasts we talked about the Amazonian Indians that can put out you know one millicolon of sodium a day in their urine. Well, they can also put out no sodium in their in their sweat because sweat glands also respond to aldosterone. And so this, you know, what it says in here is that 30 to 60 millicolons per liter of sodium. Well, that may be your average person, but if you have a trained athlete who is has aldosterone being turned on and then the sweat glands become upregulated, you won't put out very much sodium in there. And it's never been shown that any of these sports drinks do anything more than water, quite frankly. That, that what sport drinks do is really supply water in a flavor, and but there's tiny, tiny amounts of sodium in there. You know, in the marathon, and when you go to the hydration stations, it's like that very lime green liquid. And the very first time I ever had that, I realized how inadequate Gatorade was in terms of rehydration, because then that felt very, very salty, for sure. I just like to plug French fries. <laughs> Pickle juice. <laughs> So I was going to say in the military, like actually like when soldiers get dehydrated or when you're out doing exercises, then instead of pushing like Gatorade and water and things like that, we have these oral rehydration salts that I think are a little bit better. It's like three and a half grams of sodium. And you're supposed to mix it in a liter of water. So instead of like giving someone like a saline bolus or something like that, you just have them drink saline. <laughs> I think Pedialyte is actually has significantly more and probably I think a better... So. Better mm-hmm. hydration fluid. It's really meant. It's really meant for the because that's more to mimic like oh. the cholera. I, I don't know. I, I mean, think I yes. thought it was really for cholera. Yeah, but that's a volume. It, that's a volume loss, which is what what kills people. And yeah, oral rehydration solutions are readily available, but it can be hard to figure out what you're actually getting. Most have some combination of sodium, potassium, and sugar, and they're all sold in different sizes. Pedialyte, for example, has 10 milli equivalents of sodium per liter. And Gatorade has 20 milli equivalents per liter. Those little liquid IV packets, when reconstituted as directed, have 45 milli equivalents in one liter. Compare that to the WHO rehydration recipe, which is designed to replace diarrheal or GI losses, and that has 113 milli equivalents per liter, plus a gram and a half of potassium chloride. The absolute most sodium content is the military rehydration formula, which has 152 milli equivalents of sodium in one liter plus 1.5 grams of potassium chloride. You know, just to squeak it on rounds, we were we were talking about the sodium and and you know how just how dilute these fluids are and, and whether or not there's much sodium or not. And I asked the residents, well, how much? Uh, you know, the cardiologists say you can't drink pop, right? And they go, oh yeah. You, know, you can't drink pop. And I said, well, how much salt do you think's in there? And, you know, I got a lot of numbers. But, you know, you look on a can of pop and it's, you know, 30 milligrams, 40 mil. It's ridiculously low. It's a, it's five milliequivalents or something. I can't imagine that. No, I knew. I thought it, it says right on it. It's a very low sodium food. So, you know, the, the, the residents had no idea because the cardiologist is so adamant about not drinking soda because of you know uh soft drinks because of the sodium and there's there's it's basically water it's very little yeah it's the same like 20 milligrams yeah, it's or nothing. something like that <laughs> so it's healthy but in terms of the exercise induced hyponatremia the idea that any of these sport drinks could come even close to being effective right you like how do we fix those people we give them three percent we would have to be passing out glasses of seawater like nobody's gonna drink that right like you know 
we you can't not only that joel it's what causes it because they're told these you know these runners are told to drink 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 you know it's usually the novices and they drink out outside of thirst they don't have scales they've got exercise and pain induced adh and they retain all this water and yeah absolutely any any of that stuff is too bad but you're right the only way to prevent it would be to have salt water and which is three percent and no one's going to drink that yeah no i i completely agree uh, roger about the lack of of uh benefit from sports drinks or proven benefit by by any sort in fact you know i often have patients with chronic sidh they come for a follow-up clinic and they tell me very proudly that doc i'm drinking gatorade uh, so you should be proud of me and i'm like no i'm not proud of you that's a lot of water stop doing that so yeah to me it was just the connection of the concentration of sodium and sweat it allows me to remind uh, the, the connection with gatorade does anybody know what the sodium is in cystic fibrosis? The sweat sodium level I know is elevated. Is it 70, 80? It's about chloride, but sodium must follow no, too. I have no idea. I'll, be, I'll bet it is. I'll bet it's half normal. It's above 60 to 70 is, is the cutoff. So half normal or above. Half normal or above. Excellent. The average sodium content in human sweat ranges from 10 to 90 millimoles per liter, which is similar to chloride. An important determination of the final sodium and chloride concentration in sweat are driven by the sodium-potassium ATPase, which is influenced by aldosterone, and cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator chloride channel, the CFTR chloride channel. In cystic fibrosis, high sweat chloride can be helpful to diagnose cystic fibrosis in a patient with symptoms, but because there are some healthy individuals who do have a sweat chloride more than 60, these are sometimes termed quote-unquote salty sweaters in the literature, um, confirmatory genetic testing is recommended. There was one seminal study looking at the sweat electrolyte differences in patients with cystic fibrosis compared to healthy controls, and they showed that the sweat chloride in controls was an average of 23 millimoles per liter compared to 93 millimoles per liter in patients with cystic fibrosis. And so although the normal range of sweat chloride in humans is 10 to 90, a sweat chloride less than 30 is considered normal. Okay, so then he talks about the uh, regulation of plasma osmolality. He says normal osmolality is 275 to 290. But the next sentence is what I love, is that you have this range from 270 to 290. He says, but in individuals, it really only varies from 1% to 2%. So what we have is you have a bell curve where a lot of different people have different osmolalities. But in any one individual, it's going to be much tighter regulated than that full range of 275 to 290 may imply, which I thought was was actually pretty cool. So the the average among people is that, but the average for one person is more tightly regulated, which is going to be within with five points, essentially, is what it sounds like. Or even smaller, right? You see some, you look back at old labs in your patients and it's 140, 141, 140, 141, 142, 140, 141, right? And Melanie's talking about sodium there, not uh, osmolality, but yeah. That's <laughs> no, no, no. I just want to, I, I don't want anybody to think that, you know, an osmolality 140 is normal. That's not, you know, profoundly ill at 140, right? <laughs> and that, and we've talked a little bit about this, that we've detected the osmolality in specialized cells in the hypothalamus and that the body responds to these changes and then he kind of goes through an example. So what happens when you get a water load? And that's going to suppress ADH. And that he says that the ADH has a half-life. And so your peak diuresis will be 90 to 120 minutes following your water load because you need to metabolize yeah. the pre-existing ADH. So I was thinking about that. And, you know, I've got non-nephrologist friends that talk about exact phenomena when they go out drinking. And they have a term for this. 
They drink and drink and drink, and then finally they start peeing. And they call it breaking the seal. And it never occurred to me. I just thought, well, you know, it takes a while to fill up your bladder. But no, no, it's the half-life of ADH. You know, it takes a while for your ADH. You're not making new ADH because you're diluting yourself out, but it takes a while for the ADH that you have in your body to go away. And then you just start having a water diuresis. So I just thought that was absolutely fascinating because they, 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 <laughs> it's a whole thing. You got to break the seal. And then once you start, you're, you're heading to the bathroom all the time. Josh, do you have a comment on that? You look like you had something specific that you wanted to say about breaking the seal. No, that that's that's brilliant. I, I, got Anna, to I feel like this whole episode could be titled "The Things That Make Roger Unpopular." <laughs> Talking about the hypothalamus when people say they're thirsty. Like I got to break the seal. You're like, actually, no. <laughs> Sorry, Anna. Anna, you should talk. You're the one that jumped all over break the seal. You knew it quite well. <laughs> I did just get my old fashioned though, so we're good to go. Oh boy. Okay. Speaking of breaking the seal. And that he, he lays down the line, says maximum water excretion is 10 to 20 liters a day. That is a lot of urine. And it's also a huge range. Well, it depends, obviously. He goes in this, but it really depends on on ability to dilute it and solid to dilute it in, which we'll get into. Because that, that number can be markedly different based on your, if you, if you have any dilution defect or any has anybody ever had a patient that approaches that 20 number? I mean, I've never seen urine output like that. Not 20. I've had somebody who I went to discharge and I was like, are his outputs really nine liters a day? <laughs> his seal is permanently broken. Yes. <laughs> What's the lowest urine osmolality everybody's seen? I've seen the, uh, we have, we, our says less than 50. 44. 44. I can't beat that. That's, that's. I actually saw a patient that was part of a clinical trial with conivaptan, the intravenous vaptan that I don't even know if it still exists. The patient had a urine osmolality of 40 after conivaptan. That's the lowest I've seen. Am, am I right that the trade name of that was Vaprosol? That's correct. Vaprosol. Vaprosol. Yes. Great, yeah. great name. <laughs> <laughs> JC, do they make you measure those osmolalities? Like, like in an outside lab? Because a lot of the labs, you know, they, they just will say it's like under 50 and then you wouldn't know. Uh, yeah, our this is at MUSC in Charleston and the lab reported, I don't know what, I don't recall to be honest, okay. what was the lower limit, whether they have to do some different... Uh, so it's just your local yeah, lab? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a special lab at all. It was it was actually... Okay. Uh, well, and, and one of the places they actually will measure that low, that low osmolality is in drug testing. Because they don't want patients to dilute their sample mm, after they mm-hmm. collect the urine, right? It's because they're not doing a drug to creatinine ratio. <laughs> That's right. the drug to creatinine ratio is, is the clue. Is the clue that they needed the normal range of cocaine to creatinine is yeah, yeah the, co- uh, the CCR, then- the cocaine to creatinine ratio, of course. That's true. <laughs> we have again. We make we got to make sure we get the answer from ASN before this one gets published because if they hear about the cocaine to creatinine ratio, there's no way we're getting to put it on the stage. Okay, that's just that's it's all after over. the Summer Olympics and all the doping things. People are going to be using this podcast as evidence that their you know performance enhancing drug clearance is actually. And this this line comes up a couple of times, but he really lays the smack down later. But he does tease here. He says there is so much urine production potential that hyponatremia only occurs when there's an impairment in renal water excretion. I don't want to get, I don't want to lean into that statement yet because he really focuses in on that later and we'll get to that later. Um, and then he flips the, the script. So that's how the body responds to a water load. And then he talks about how the body responds to an osmolar load and one guess on what is an example of an osmolar load, Burton Rose's favorite osmolar load. 
Potato chips. Potato Probably chips. Probably Cape Cod, though he doesn't chips. specifically say so. Cape Cod potato chips. Doesn't mention it, but we, we, can, can, we, can, we can dream, yeah. right? We can infer. He really could have gone <laughs> for an endorsement deal here. I think that really would have made this. And then he says, this is more about water intake than kidney changes. And then he does talk about the normal sodium in DI. And then he says, this is the perfect evidence that though we have two ways to defend against hypernatremia, which is the use of ADH and thirst, thirst is so much more important because even if you completely remove ADH, which would be central diabetes insipidus, or in fact, I think he, I think the example he likes to use is um, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, but with the total absence of ADH activity, as long as the patient has access to water, their sodium is going to be normal. And the caveat to that is as long as they're as long as they're conscious and have access to water, because the irony of using the example of the uh, nephrogenic DIs, I've seen several cases of people on lithium go to the OR. They don't even know they have a problem. They make three liters a day because they think that's normal. They go to the OR. They make their they have their water diuresis, and every anesthesiologist gives saline to replace urine output. So they're having a water diuresis, they're replaced with saline, and their serum sodium is post-op or 165, and then they call nephrology. So I always tell these patients, you've got to have a bracelet. Your bracelet says, I have, you know, I have diabetes insipidus. None of them do it, <laughs> but I try to tell them to do it because, you know, if you get in a car accident or you go to the OR or anything, it's going to get completely messed up. Yeah, you're going to shrink your brain. Absolutely. My outline then says that the response to the salty potato chips, I think I have this a little bit out, in the order, but out of order, but it's to increase the AMP decrease the aldo, and increase the ADH. And that he points out that you'll have a high sodium, highly concentrated urine, and it'll be similar to the solute load that you got, which was low water content and high salt content. You know, just to point out how sensitive that hypothalamic response to an osmolarity change is, I always notice that every time I eat pizza, and I'll eat a lot of pizza, and it may be Chicago pizza, but you eat a few slices of pizza and you get thirsty, and it clearly it's a it's a physiologic response. Your osmolarity's gone up, and your hypothalamus says drink water, and you need it to help excrete the sodium. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, you know uh, A and P is going up, and and renin's going down, and you're going to have a, a, a naturesis, but you also need water to excrete it. It's very powerful. I was going to say I was a little confused when I read this kind of the sequence that it says there is, there's more excretion of excess sodium responsive mediated uh, reduction in release of aldosterone. And then uh, thirst, thirst, you increase water intake, and then it lowers the plasma osmolality toward normal and then further expands the volume. So I guess my question is, so expanding the volume, even though there is that reduction in aldosterone, the water intake is still increasing the volume in that moment? I think that's what's implying, yeah. And there's a little bit of volume, but okay. I didn't love this paragraph because he's kind of mixed volume and, and, and uh, osmolality together. And I just think it's so much better to separate right. those two. He's not wrong. I just, I hate- Well, that's what's yeah. confusing. Yeah. To people when you say, well, s- well, water is not volume and you're like, well- except when you're drinking water because you're thirsty and hyper as molar, and then it is volume, right? In this scenario? Absolutely. This is what trips up um, people when they're thinking about this and when you say this, because you're saying, oh, I just drank a liter of this and you were trying to, and then we say like, oh, well, there's still euvolemic or like in situations of um, polydipsia, right? Hyponatremia from polydipsia. It, technically, it's under euvolemic. How can you be euvolemic if you've drank in excess of, I don't know, 10 liters, right? And so I think I agree that I I also agree. I don't really like this part because it, it's this part is confusing. But I mean, water is volume. It's just not a lot of volume. Like what? 
Because two thirds yeah. of it, it's just distributed, so you don't see it inside the cells. Yes, and then another yes, quarter of it disappears into the interstitium, and just the ten or fifteen percent remains in the plasma compartment, or ten percent remains in the plasma compartment. Well, two thirds, but it has volume. The smallest compartment is intravascular. So, Amy, you're right. I mean, I always say water's not volume, water's not volume, water's not volume, and then you know, thirty minutes later, I'm talking about SIDH, how. The water retention increases the GFR, turns on natriuretic peptide, which excretes sodium in the setting of ADH, drives the urine sodium up to the point of you know, desalination. <laughs> so I always say water's not volume, but it's a little bit of volume. And it, it, there are situations where it's clinically relevant. So, But I, it's real important, at least with the residents, that I always say, you know, you don't give D5W to someone who's hypovolemic. And, but I think we shouldn't so. be so dogmatic. I've said, I feel like I'm repeating myself because I've said this before, but this is the scenario. I always think about being hungover and drinking a lot of water and you're like, there's some volume though. Yeah, I think in, in a way it's, it's important to understand them independently, but most of the times when you have water excess, you may have sodium excess. When you have water deficit, you may have water deficit. So the regu- regulation of water and sodium are often occurring simultaneously. And, and it's just very difficult to dissociate it completely. Another example is angiotensin II. Uh, we talked about how thirst is stimulated via osmoregulation, but we also know that in hypovolemic states, the renin angiotensin system is stimulated, and angiotensin II, in addition to promote sodium retention, it does increase thirst. Um, and that obviously affects water balance directly. So I think it's very difficult to dissociate completely both concepts. I want to bring up a clinical conundrum that we had recently because it stresses how important that you have that thirst is involved. Because, you know, you can live without ADH if you have, or response to ADH, if you have a thirst mechanism and you have access to water. So Diabetes insipidus is an inconvenience more than a threat, but you have to have a lot of water and be awake and have it available. But if you don't have a thirst mechanism, you're in real trouble. And we had a patient recently who had a hypothalamic, I think it was a craniopharyngioma or something, and had central diabetes insipidus and no thirst. Yeah, primary adipsia. We've seen that. I have a patient like that. How do you manage that? I mean, how do you, with diabetes insipidus, the idea is to give enough ADH so that they don't pee 40 times a day. They pee twice as much as us. Because if you give too much ADH and you drink too much, you've produced iatrogenic SIDH. So you give enough ADH so they don't get into trouble if they still drink too much. But if you've got this and you have no thirst, what do you do? How do you, how do you measure that? Because you know, if the person with SIDH doesn't drink enough water, they'll still have thirst and they will drink water. But if you don't give enough ADH and you don't drink enough, you're going to have a hypernatremic. And this patient kept coming in with hypernatremia, despite the fact that they had plenty of ADH because they had they didn't have a thirst. So they, they'd come in with uh, obtundation from their, you know, from their hypernatremia. Uh, to make matters worse, type 1, non-adherent type 1 diabetic who would come in and DK, DKA2, it was, a, it was a terrible situation. But but. Regardless, I mean, the only thing that I could come up with to solve this was to say, okay, give them the DDAVP and you have to weigh yourself every day or twice a day. You know, give them a dry weight. And if you and if you fall below that dry weight, you have to drink more because now the scale of the dry weight becomes your thirst mechanism. Because there's no other way that I imagine that they could possibly get around it because you can't trust their drinking. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, if you have someone who's like totally cognitively intact and like an engineer, right? Engineers are the perfect people to have these problems because they'll always measure everything and follow your instructions. You could imagine like swamping them with tons of DDAVP, having a super concentrated urine, having a measure everything, and then saying, this is your prescription of water, you've got to get a day, and that's it and no more. The problem is that you can't predict insensibles. I mean, you know, that's why thirst is so important because it's and it's so incredibly sensitive. I eat two slices of pizza, I get thirsty. And, th- and the good beauty is if I decide to drink six beers when I don't need six beers, my kidneys can dilute and put out the extra water. <laughs> well, this <laughs> is when you're going to, hopefully we get the Apple Watch. Have you heard of this, that the, the Apple Watch is not going to measure lactate and alcohol levels? Maybe we'll right, get... take all yeah. the lactate. Oh yes, God. the next don't, generation. I'm going to retire. I I'm serious, this is Valley what I read. Watch to tell you your alcohol... Not my watch tells me my bank balance. That's my alcohol. That's the inverse of my yeah, alcohol. So apparently, yes. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe they needed something that'll give us our like electrolytes live. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm 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 all about lactate and what's the other level. lactate and alcohol alcohol level. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it. I don't. Okay. No, I just I just think. The, the first time somebody gets in a car accident and said, my Apple Watch said I was not drunk enough. I'm fine, right? That's just a lot of liability for Tim Cook. I don't buy it. Okay. Okay. All right. The next example he went through, he says, the after we talked about a water load, and then we talked about the, the crackers, and then he talks about getting normal saline. And the point about normal saline is it doesn't change the osmolality. There's no release of ADH, and it's a purely volume issue where they'll suppress aldosterone and, and simulate ANP. And then he goes on to talk about renal water excretion. And I loved this description because I never thought about this way. He says that most water is reabsorbed passively in the proximal tubule and the descending limb of the loop of Henley. But what I loved, he says, this is isotonic fluid absorption, which is going to maintain the volume of the extracellular fluid, right? So all of this is going to be isotonic. All of this massive fluid reabsorption in the proximal tubule and the loop of Henley or in the descending loop of Henley. And then in our classic diluting segments, or as Melanie liked to call them, the concentrating segments, just to confuse everything, <laughs> in the ascending limb and in the distal convoluted tubule and in the connecting segment and the, the cortical collecting duct, there you get reabsorption of solute without water. And this differentiation is uh, essential for adjusting osmolality. That's the, criti- that's the critical thing. So he kind of separated those two functions here. In the proximal tubule, in the descending limb of the loop of Henle, this is for volume regulation. And in the ascending loop of Henle, in the distal nephron, this is for osmolality regulation. So in Melanie's patient who had a urine osmolality of 44, that was extremely proficient system where you're reabsorbing sodium without water. And then obviously ADH was completely suppressed. So there was no water reabsorption from that point on. Yeah. When nephrologists objectify patients, they're like, check out the lips of Henley on that one. <laughs> You're an osmolality of 44. <laughs> I love the term delivery segment because I just think physiologically, it really helps people understand that that's, that's the point there. That's what we need to have. That has to be active. And then you suppress ADH and that's what gives you a dilute urine. So I, I, I still like that term. So Melanie, I'm not giving it up. No, I am going with you on the diluting segment for the distoconvolute tubule, but for the loop con- concentrating segment because it in charge of concentrating the medulla. But you, can, I'm totally with you on the DCT. That's true because you know the idea that like the kidney's job is to either concentrate or dilute the urine. 
is totally just a function of homeostasis, but the medulla has to be concentrated so it can do its job. So really the only thing that you can ever say for sure is that the medulla has to be concentrated. And then he mentions here too, how that the maximum urinosm like decreases with age. I, I, I didn't, I guess maybe I knew that, but I don't think I really knew that, <laughs> but we don't really know why. Do we know why now it's that happens or is there, you mean like existentially? The why? Oh, it's like the <laughs> yeah. ultimate curiosity question. I think I'm so glad you brought that up. It's been like a big disappointment for me. You know, my pediatric colleagues see really amazing. Like, what's your highest yeah. urinosome? I think one time I saw something over 800. You know, but most of the time it's under, whereas the pediatricians tell me they see that all the time. You know, we always say like 50 to 1200, but I never see a thousand. But the other thing is that I have read, but never found any papers that as we age, we also can't maximally dilute. And I don't know if anyone has any thoughts about that. I once went down a rabbit. But I think that makes total sense, right? Because they're one in the same, right? If you're not able to concentrate that medulla, that means you're not pulling that fluid out of the ascending limb of the loop of Henley. So it makes total sense that you wouldn't be able to dilute as much. I think they got to walk hand in hand. I spent once like an entire afternoon trying to find the old paper that proved that with with no luck. So if anyone listening to this podcast wants to write to me about that. So there were two studies that I was able to find that described this impaired dilution in the elderly. In one study in 1966, 21 healthy volunteers were continually water-loaded, and once maximal urinary this was achieved, they collected their urines. So in the young group, who had an average age of 31, their urine osmos was 52 milliosms per kilo, compared to 92 milliosms per kilo in the older group, and their average age was 84. And this discrepancy was again seen in 1995 where after water loading younger subjects who average age of 26 had a mean urine osmos of 86 compared to 112 milliosms per kilo which was seen in the older group after water loading and their mean age was 72. This comes into play in a lot of these algorithmic approaches to hyponatremia where they say oh if you're if your urine osmolality is above 100 then you have ADH activity. I'm like, well, maybe not. Maybe if you have some CKD and you're yeah. 80 years old, yeah. you can't dilute your urine down to 80 or 100. Maybe 120 is the lowest you could get. Yeah, or even if it's not measurable CKD, we just yeah, don't I have the biomarker to I, tell the CKD yet. Like maybe their muscle masses. Well, I think that's a really good point. And Amy, you know, this uh, age-related uh, concentration, I, did, I didn't see any numbers. Did they have any numbers there or did it just said it was less? Yeah, there's a foot, there's a footnote on the bottom of the page and it says, uh, the footnote says maximum urine concentration falls with age goes down to 500 to 700 in the aged, which is very consistent with my clinical experience. That's okay. So uh, I didn't expect yeah, that. I didn't low. see the footnote. I expect it was going to say 1200 to 800, which is probably clinically insignificant, but 500. Versus or 600 versus 1200 is, it's, yeah, it's half the concentration. Just like a urine dilution from 50 to 100 is half the dilution. And that means you can only excrete half as much water. And the same opposite would be true with uh, concentration. So that, that that's really uh, very interesting. And at clinic, it is clinically significant. I'm not used to measuring these things in, in older people. So I haven't really thought about it. But Melanie said the highest you've seen is 800. 
I don't know that I've seen. I mean, once I saw someone in the 900s, but he was 19 years old. Yeah, and since then. Ever seen, has anybody seen a 12 or 400, no. which is claiming in this book? Yeah, I, I have seen never it. seen a four digit uh, osmolality. And we always, we always teach it as 1,200 and 600 milliosms a day, yeah. and 1,200 yeah. milliosm uh, urine gives you, you know, 500 mLs of urine a day. I mean, we always use those numbers. I've never seen it that concentrated either. Yeah, I don't know what the answer to your question, Amy, is, but I've always seen it as in a sort of perhaps too simplistic way that uh, you, you really need a healthy kidney to be able to achieve that high tonicity in the papilla and the four digits. And as you age, as you know, we all develop uh, tumor atrophy, interstitial fibrosis. So it's expected that those areas of the, of the renal parenchyma are probably not healthy enough to achieve that. But And that's what I was thinking too, as Joel was talking about, you know, oftentimes as nephrologists, we see patients with CKD or patients have underlying CKD and we may or may not realize that. And so sometimes I'm always scratching my head when I get the urinosins and I'm like, well, the patient probably has some CKD or the patient does have CKD. So I don't really know what to do with this. <laughs> so, so I think Amy's question is a really good one. And I hadn't, I'm not a regular reader of the American Journal of Physiology anthropology, but we'll have a link in the show notes for this. This idea that maximal urine concentrating decreases with age has actually only been studied in industrialized civilizations and Western civilizations primarily. So the group of Jeff Sands, he's at uh, Emory, studied actually two groups that I was not familiar with, the Simani forager horticulturalists in Bolivia and the Hadza hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. And apparently neither of those groups have a decline in urine osmol maximal urine osmolality with increasing age. So this may just be like a Western diet, civilization, disease, something that happens to us. Josh, this is not Dr. Sand's first appearance on the channel Your Enthusiasm. JC has mentioned them before when it came to urea transport. Am I right, JC? That's correct. <laughs> Wow. We should have like a reference of who we call out and how often, like a bingo board or something. Mm -hmm. I think he was in the last chapter. But I thought that was interesting. I, I hadn't, you know, number one, I didn't read the footnote the first time. So thanks for pointing it out to us. But but number two, I think it's interesting to think about like how many of these, these insights we have about physiology come from only studying people who look like and live like us. You know, the other thing is if, if they're talking about tribal and I assume these are tribal peoples, you know, they're living in dry environments and it may be similar to the Amazon where they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not used to having a lot of water and they have to be able to concentrate and everything gets upregulated up and they may not really represent, you know, what the average person can do. Actually, the really frightening answer is the ones that can't <laughs> concentrate are dead. Right. <laughs> Only the ones that can concentrate survive. It's this huge survival bias. <laughs> I'm not biased. Darwinism. <laughs> but Amy, you know, it's interesting because you said they probably have CKD. So, you know, CKD, what CKD is, is a de decreased nephron mass. You know, when you have a 50% reduction in GFR, you don't have 50% nephrons. You've got 30% nephrons that are working 140% of the time. Or so. And, um, yeah, yeah. And so every nephron is undergoing a solute diuresis. And anytime you undergo a solute diuresis, you, it does impair dilution and concentration. So, you know, I think it's probably that may be what we're dealing with with age is just, you know, decreased nephron mass and, and, uh, uh, single nephron GFR goes up. But, but I, it's not irrelevant. I mean, these old people can't concentrate. Older people can't concentrate. They don't have access to water and they're going to get into trouble more quickly. Uh, then he talks about a super important concept is that, um, Talks about solute excretion is fixed. That solute in is going to equal solute out. 
And so that if you have a fixed ADH level, the volume of urine that you make is going to be dependent on the amount of solute in your diet, which is a kind of a general concept that we use when we treat patients with DI or also when we treat people with SIADH, both two situations where they have fixed ADH levels. So in the case of DI, putting patients on a low-solute diet will allow them to decrease their urine output. And in the case of somebody with SIADH, if you increase their solute intake, you can increase their urine output. The former, the DI, the classic story for kids with congenital uh, nephrogenic DIs, if you look at their diet, it is a diet that is dominated by carbohydrates because carbohydrates have decreased solute and it had the additional effect of producing additional water. And so these patients have benefit from that. And that in the opposite situation in SIADH, uh, this is the f- reasoning behind giving patients urea or salt tablets in this condition. I saw a patient in clinic last week who had been on lithium and has nephrogenic DI, which has persisted even off lithium. And yeah, we talked about that. And I said, has anybody told you to restrict your your sodium? And and it had never even come up. And I think that is one of the most underappreciated factors of DI is that, you know, we all talk about, you know, thiazides or whatever, you know, you know, or uh, amelioride, amelioride. Acetazolamide. Exactly. But, you know, solid intake plays a huge role. And I think that's underappreciated. I think the other thing, though, about this, right, is that we know that salt in leads to to osms that need to be secreted in the urine. We know that protein in leads to osms that need to be secreted in the urine. But we know that carbohydrate in does not mean osms that need to be secreted in the urine. So you can dangle this as a little bit of a carrot in front of people. Like you go crazy on the crackers or on the cake or on the something else, but stay away from the protein, stay away from the salty things. And I think this is like something that took me a while to internalize as a fellow about like tea and toast hyponatremia. The reason like eating toast doesn't give you solute that you can use to excrete water is because that carbohydrate gets metabolized to CO2 and water, and there's no kidney transporter for CO2. There's just a lung. That CO2 just gets breathed off. And so I think the idea that CO2 is not an active osm uh, is helpful here in understanding both the, the physiology that we're talking about here, but also the treatment of hyponatremia. Yes, it's not tea and tuna. The problem with that is that is people don't is people don't understand how much salt is in bread, right? There ends up being a pretty significant amount of salt. Yeah, but in it's, bread. it's interesting uh, uh, to go through these recommendations with patients. Uh, I'm sure you have gone through this, but again, seeing patients with chronic hyponatremia in clinic and having a patient and a spouse next to the patient, and I try to explain what dietary habits they need to adopt. And when I'm trying to tell the patient, you need to eat a, a salty steak is good for you because that's going to generate a lot of urea and sodium. You know, usually the spouse looks at the others. Did you hear that? My doctor is telling me to eat a salted steak. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, they love him. <laughs> and and so, suddenly, you're the, you're the you're or, the most favorite doctor in the whole or world. Or you're the quack. What are you telling me to eat a steak and salt? What, what kind of what kind of doctor are you? <laughs> well, the best thing is a, is a highly processed frankfurters because you get both sodium and protein in there. Oh, the Chicago effect. Roger, is do you have any there. Vienna beef conflict of interest you want to disclose prior to this episode? Say, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Just as, just as long as you don't put I know. ketchup on I was it. Say. We've done two pages. Okay, the next segment. Okay, it's only like six. That's fine. I ran into a wall with this next paragraph. Its section is called Measurement of Renal Water Excretion. And this first paragraph 
threw me for a loop because I did not understand where he came from. He says, this simple example, and I wasn't sure which example he was talking about, of the effect of solute excretion demonstrates that water excretion can vary widely without changes in the urine osmolality. Thus, the urine osmolality, which reflects the kidney's ability to dilute or concentrate the urine, is not an accurate estimate of its quantitative ability to excrete or retain water. And that's all in italics. Like he was super deliberate with this. And I was like, I got all kinds of question marks on my book here. I have no idea what's going on here. Well, I think what he's doing here, and, and I could be, I could be off, but in those papers you just, that we talked about earlier, and I, and I, and I loaded three of them up. He, he gives really nice examples of the difference between osmolar free water clearance and electrolyte free water clearance. And, you know, the title of one of them is a new way of looking at, you know, water excretion. And because he says a new, a new way, Really, up to that point, everybody had, was looking at osmolar free water clearance. They'd look at the urine osmolarity compared to the serum osmolarity, and they, they'd make their judgments on what that's going to affect on the patient's serum osmolarity, when in fact, the, 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 the urine osmolarity is affected by urea and sodium in water, which is the whole point of the new way of looking at it, which he gets to later in this chapter, is electrolyte-free water clearance. And I think what he's saying here is that osmolarity by its, the urine osmolarity by itself isn't the answer. You have to look at the electrolytes in the water, in, in the urine, because osmo, because urea is an ineffective This was osmo. one of those things that I was like, you just have to believe it until you get to the rest of the chapter. Just tattoo it on your forearm. Roger, I think you absolutely nailed it, but... I don't think he gives the example. I don't think he does the, like his first sentence, like from the example above, there's not an example of above that demonstrates so, that. So Joel, I think he's talking about the paragraph we just talked about, about diet. So what he's saying, like if people ate this amount of sodium and protein, they would have 10 liters of urine. But if they ate half the amount of sodium protein, they would have five liters of urine. But if you measured a uosm on each person's urine, the uosm concentration would be the same. He doesn't call it out specifically, but like the uosm concentration alone doesn't tell you what's going on. But I think, but I, but Roger, I, what you said about the difference between uh, free water clearance, free water clearance, which osmotic, is not versus electrolyte free water clearance, clearance I think is exactly and, yeah. right because that shows that the osmolality doesn't call it. And I I, I like your explanation. Um, pretty satisfied with that. This chapter was written about 10 years or 15 years after th those papers were written. And those papers go through it much better than this. And that's not like Bud. Bud doesn't do that. He gets better with time. And I think he doesn't do it as well here because in those papers, he gives very concrete examples of someone with heart failure who has a negative osmotic free water clearance, but a positive electrolyte free water or vice versa. And that's the way you do it. And it's kind of here, but it's not as well done here. And that's why I think it's a little confusing. Yeah, I, Joel, I agree. It, it made me pause because on the previous page, he has a statement about the importance of solute excretion and urine output. And then the following page, he puts in italics again, saying, no, 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 urinosmolality is not a determinant. So I, I had the same uh, uh, confusion. And I, I think, Roger, you nail it. I it tried to uh, sort of rationalize it in a different way that you may have a patient with a urinosmolality of 100 milliosmoles per kilogram, uh, let's say with pyrapotomania or Tito's diet, and the urine output may be one liter a day. You may have a patient with psychogenic polydipsia with a urinosmolality of 100 milliosmoles per kilogram and maybe urinating 10 liters a day. So there's a tremendous difference in the water excretion uh, and with the same degree of urinosmolality. But probably that's not what he was trying to get at. 
I think Roger's exactly right. This, uh, at that time, before this came out, everybody embraced using free water clearance with the, with the osms. And so having the electrolytes was really different. And I think that's what his point is um, to show that the electrolyte free clearance is better. The American Journal of Medicine, December 1986, new approach to disturbances in plasma sodium concentration. I mean, basically, it's a new paradigm. It's This is not about osmotic free water clearance. It's electrolyte free water clearance because urea is an effective osm. Okay, but let's but let's do the work. Let's let's do the work. And let's do the free water clearance first. And so the, the basic idea between free water clearance is we're going to hypothetically, we're going to divide the urine output into two pots. We're going to have one pot in which we get rid of all of the solute that's contained in the urine at the same concentration in plasma. And why is this useful? Because when you remove solute at the same concentration that's in plasma, it doesn't change the osmolality of the body, right? I always, when I talk to residents, I say, this is like, you got a ladle, you got a big vat of soup and you take a ladle of the soup out. Do you change the concentration of the soup? Well, what if you take two ladles of soup out, right? It doesn't matter how much of this volume you remove. You haven't changed the concentration of the soup because the concentration of the salt in the soup, in the ladle is identical to the vat. So you can remove as much of that and it doesn't affect the osmolality. Well, what's left? Well, the rest of it is the, is the free water. And this is the balance of that volume, right? We said, we said we divided the urine into two vats. One of them has all the solute. Well, if it has all the solute, what's left is just free water. Okay. And removing this free water is like either if you remove the water, it's like boiling the soup. You boil off the water. The soup gets more concentrated. Or if it's negative free water clearance, it's like pouring water into the vat and it's going to dilute the soup. And that's the second compartment. So there's two. And which one do we need to keep track of when we're talking about changes in the serum sodium? Only the second one. Only the one where you're either boiling water off or adding water to soup is going to change the osmolality. So that's the two, that's the concept. And the, and the critical part of the story is say, we're going to divide the, vo- the urine volume into these two compartments. And if you add these two volumes together, you'll get the total urine volume. And that's equation number nine dash one. Volume equals the osmolar clearance plus the water clearance. And that's what, and that's, that's the mathematical representation of we're going to take the urine and we're going to represent it as two compartments. One that's solute. That's the clear, the osmolar clearance, and the other one is free water, and that's the water. Clearance. Yeah, and I don't know why I have such a hard time with this because I do conceptually. Sometimes when we talk about giving normal saline to someone with SIADH, I imagine two different half saline bags, one like the urine, one is water. I don't know why I can't do it the other way. And and then the the next step in this in this journey is he says, okay, we're going to talk about osmolar clearance and. Cause, cause you mathematically can't get to water clearance. Cause that just, you can't, it just doesn't work. So we're going to do osmolar clearance and the osmo, and the osmolar clearance just works like any clearance formula. So the osmolar clearance equals the urine osmolality times the urine flow rate divided by the plasma P. osmolality. Right. So UV over P. We've seen it, a, we've seen it a bunch of times. And then you substitute that UV over P into formula nine one. So you get volume and then you saw, and then you solve, you do some algebra and you solve for the water clearance. Um, and that's so you have water clearance, which is free water clearance is equal to V times the quantity one minus urine osmolality divided by plasma osmolality. And that's going to be your 
Osmotic uh, free water clearance. Uh, that's your free water clearance formula. Which I would argue <laughs> is of no value. I think he's arguing that too. It's of no value. It's of absolutely nothing clinically. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And that his point, we talked earlier and we talked extensively. When we talk about symptoms, when we talk about what causes symptoms from hyponatremia and hypernatremia, it is changes in tonicity, not changes in osmolality. And that's why you can get patients that have a BUN of 200 and they're, and they don't complain about being thirsty. Right. They're not super thirsty. And, and, you know, why is that is because that, that urea diffuses across the cell membranes fine and it doesn't move water. It doesn't change cell volumes. It's not an effective osmol. And what is an effective osmol? Oh, that's sodium. And he says, well, if we we're going to talk about sodium and we, we had defined that in previous chapters, we said the important thing is going to be the changes in sodium. That's the effective osmol. Then we need to do something a little different. Instead of looking at just total osmolar clearance and free water clearance, we want to look at the what affects changes in sodium concentration, the primary effective osmol in the extracellular compartment. And in that way, he has a small variation in the formula in which we substitute serum osmolality to serum sodium. And urine osmolality, we substitute as urine sodium plus urine potassium. You make those substitutions and you get the electrolyte free water clearance formula, which is formula nine seven. Thank you. Nine seven on page 294. Thank you. This was really useful for me. Like very helpful for me. And do you guys use electrolyte free water clearance? I know Melanie is not is a hater. We're going to get to her position. I want to hear it. I like it. I do. I think that it's good. And sometimes I, the way that I explain it is it's a lot more conceptual. It helps you really guide the management rather than tell you exactly, you know, what, um, uh, you know, a certain volume, because it always gets confusing. Like, what do you mean electrolyte free water, like, or osmolar free water clearance? But I do think it's helpful in terms of guiding management. Like if you're in the negative electrolyte free water clearance zone, like, you're not going to bother with like fluid restriction and these. Kinds okay. Of I want to stop you there because I, I, I agree, but, but Burton Rose pulls a fast one on us. He doesn't use a negative electrolyte free water clearance, right? He uses this tubular reabsorption of water and, and which I, I am so much more comfortable with negative clearance, right? Cause I know what clearance is. I'm so much more comfortable with this, this, this water that needs to be removed from the, from the urine to generate the uh, the urine osmolality that he had, I thought was a difficult reach. Um, I, I see Roger shaking his head saying yes. Oh, absolutely. It's a semantics, but it's important semantics because it's po- electrolyte positive or negative free water clearance. It makes perfect sense. I just don't think the, the terminology was there when he wrote it. And and sorry, just to clarify. So, like, I was introduced to the idea of electrolyte free water clearance from like this first 2000 American Journal of Medical Sciences paper that I think other folks have probably seen. The math is exactly the same. The theory is exactly the same. I think just the way it ends up being packaged is a little simpler. And I think that's why that probably catches on 15, 20 years later than when the initial Bud Rose paper comes out. Because I was surprised that like, oh, there's a chapter of electrolyte free water clearance in a book that was published in 2000 when I thought that article only came out in 2000. I hadn't seen this like 1986 paper until we started talking about it. But really in, in that ratio idea, you really just look at this urine sodium plus urine potassium divided by 
plasma sodium. And it's that ratio that gives you a sense of what all the other math is going to shake out as. It's going to tell you if you're going to end up with negative free water clearance or positive free water clearance. It's going to tell you is free water restriction a waste of my time and the patient's effort? Or is it actually like a, a useful exercise to try to fix this problem? Well, and not only that, not only that, like a, a reasonable question that a trainee may ask is, Dr. Toff, the most severe hyponatremias are always the thiazide, the polydepsia, and the SIADH. It's never the heart failure. Why is that? And you're like, well, let's do the math. And it becomes immediately apparent that in heart failure, the kidney is making the qualitative, the right type of urine to correct the situation. It just can't make enough of it. It is quantitatively insufficient, but qualitative, it is urine that is clearing. It is getting rid of free water, which should raise the sodium. They just can't make enough of that urine. But in SIDH, you have the opposite situation because you have this negative electrolyte free water clearance. Every time the patient is urinating, they're driving their sodium even further down. It's it is qualitatively inappropriate urine in a way that you don't see with heart failure. And that to, to me, that's such a great way of showing. That's why the heart failure hyponatremia doesn't get that severe because the kidney's doing the right thing to correct it. Yeah, the way I explain it is, is because you're in SIDH, you're retaining water, and in heart failure, you're retaining salt and water, and that that basically saying the same thing, but that prevents the sodium from going down. You know, Josh, what you said, it. you, you know, you've got these equations, but in the end, it's really comes down to exactly what you said. You, you add the urine, potassium, and sodium together, and you compare it to the serum sodium. And if they're both really low, that's mostly electrolyte-free water. And if it's close to serum, if it adds up to the sodium, there's no free water. And if it's above, there's negative free water, and you're, you're desalinating. And I like to keep it that way. So I don't calculate it, but I do look at those numbers. But I, what I really like about the concept is it it takes into account potassium, which gets so ignored because it, normally it's ignored in the blood, but it's but it's relevant in the urine. And it's relevant because of the element equation, you know, because in the end, everything has to do with total body sodium and total body potassium divided by exchangeable divided by total body water. So that's what I really like about it. You know, we talk about Lasix making half normal and, you know, should be relative, you know, should be, you know, if you make half normal, that would be half electrolyte free water, be 500 cc's of normal and 500 cc's of D5W. Think of it that way. But Lasix drives a lot, the urine potassium up a lot. And there really, it's not as much electrolyte free water clearance as you'd think with it, with, with the, with the loop diuretic because they, because the potassium does get ignored. So that's what I really like about the fact that knowing that there's potassium in the urine, because it, it negates what you think you're doing it, it, you're not excreting as much free water when you have potassium in the urine. Yeah, I want to go back to your comment, Roger, that uh, water clearance equation is useless. Uh, and, you know, if you think about all these equations, urine osmolality is going to be obviously directly proportional to urinary sodium and urinary potassium. So they go, for most of the times, hand-to-hand. The issue becomes when urea is a uh, a prominent osmol in the urine. And that is the instance where the urinosmolality doesn't really match with the sum of urine, sodium, and potassium. So for that reason, the only clinical scenario that I personally use this equation is in the scenario that 
he talks about in the chapter, which is the parental nutrition or two feet patient in the ICU with a BUN of 125 and an incredible amount of osmotic diuresis from filter urea and develop hypernatremia. Well, I don't calculate it anymore because I've been doing this for so many years that 90% of the times it's end up being either 0 0.4, 0 0.5, or 0 0.6 of the urine output is free water. So I always just guess half patient is urinating three liters. Well, and a liter and a half is just water. And you take that as an ongoing losses of water. Obviously, as was pointed out by Melanie earlier, that's just what you're losing. Then you have to add the deficit, which is a concept that usually gets missed in the ICU when they give a couple of free water flushes by the two feeds and the sodium went from 151 to 151 in 24 hours, and they consult us to see what's going on. The patient is not responding to the free water flushes. But again, just to go back to the equation, Roger, I, I think uh, I, I see your point, um, but other than this scenario, I personally don't use this equation of free water, electrolyte free water excretion. I don't know if you use it for SIDA well, patients. No, no, to be clear, what I was saying is the osmotic free water clearance is no, of no value. Electrolyte free water clearance it's fine whether you whether you calculate it or estimate it. I'm just saying osmotic free water clearance. Oh, the concept. Value. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that's what I was saying. The osmotic free water clearance, and that's what they did forever until he came up with this new concept of electrolyte free water clearance because that's what matters for the serum sodium. What I love about this equation is it's one equation that works both for hyponatremia and for hypernatremia, which is how it should be, right? We're just talking about sodium. You mean we're talking about water? And, and I, I do... <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I mean. I mean sort of concentration. But I, 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 it's, it, there's something really elegant about, hey, this is just how sodium is handled. And you can apply it in a patient who's got hyponatremia or hypernatremia or polydipsia. And it is instructive. All it's telling you is just how the, the kidney is handling this. And I think that I, I love that aspect about it. And before, before we get Melanie and I'm. Oh I'm no, so much pressure. Goods about why she doesn't like this. But before we get, before, there's a lot of pressure. We're, and, and honestly, we'll, we'll, we'll cut it out if it's not good. But, um, <laughs> but, but what I want is I, I find that the math and the, the amount of understanding it takes to deliver this information is pretty extensive. And so I kind of want to get a sense, like I teach this to fellows and I will teach this to the occasional, very motivated resident, but I find I have simpler ways to teach hyponatremia and hypernatremia without going down here. What are you, what are you guys doing? I want to start with Leticia there. Letty, what, what, when do, what, you don't teach this to your second year medical students, do you? No, no. It, it, to be honest, I found that like I really kept my limit at the electrolyte free water clearance. I can't, you know, the in terms of like a smaller free water clearance. I'm not, yeah, I'm not teaching this. You teach it to your fellows, of course, right? Yes, to the fellows, yes. And even then, um, actually, even like, well, it has to be over several, like the, our fellows lecture series, we go in chunks, right? Like electrolyte acid base, glomerular diseases and that stuff. But even the first time that we go through like in electrolytes, it's not. It's not a no. first time. That's right. No, it's not a, it's, it's not, not a, first, a first, time. first time. It's like hour four of hyponatremia. <laughs> exactly. Amy, when do you learn about this? Uh, I learned about it in fellowship, actually, and it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around it. I get it now, but it did take me a little bit of time. Yeah, I don't think there's any embarrassment that it takes you a, a lot of, like, yeah. this was something that I worked on for a while for me to get, 
right? It is not easy. And it really, it really took the exercise of writing a chapter and having to sit down and like, I need to be able to explain this. And I had to work, I had to just push paper and pencil for a while before I got it. Yeah. Anna, you got a story on electrolyte free water clearance? I don't. I, I, which is like the nerdiest question. <laughs> no, I don't have like, a story yet. I'll let you guys know what I do. And then you can brand me into No, let's go back to Dungeons and Dragons. That was your nerdiest question. This is really not. No, I, I, I don't yet. When I do, I will, whenever what we're talking about that day, I will stop you all and make sure I tell you. I think this is a tool I actually use. I, I learned as a first year fellow, and I think I used in teaching residents and when we had, and other junior fellows, when I was a second year fellow, when we had patients with hyponatremia who were not responding to fluid restriction. And I think that's really like, it's not, it, it works sort of in theory, but it works so much better in practice. And I feel like the urine to plasma electrolyte free water ratio to me is almost like a Tolvaptan decision tool more than anything else. If the urine to plasma electrolyte water ratio is greater than one, no matter how much you fluid restrict this person within reason, you're going to lose. Well, for like me, less, for me, less so because you can't make the decision on tolvaptan even if it's like you have a negative free water clearance or, the, or like you're saying the ratio is greater than one. If your sodium is really low, right? It's just maybe you're deciding it like for maintenance, but not for initial management, right? I've used it for initial management. I think there are folks who have end-stage cancer and the idea of putting them on a fluid restriction for the rest of their life of 200 mils a day just sounds like torture. And the question is, what should you do to help manage this? And if you've ruled out hypothyroidism and you've ruled out adrenal insufficiency and you're stuck in this SADH place and you can't imagine telling this old woman to eat six grams of salt a day or six hot dogs a day, yeah. yeah. But I think what Letty is saying is that if you have a patient who has like a sodium of yes. 100. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. If you're in a crazy low place, Dalton. absolutely. <laughs> like a, yeah. No, no, I'm not saying yeah, yeah. that. I think if yeah, you're in a crazy so, place, yeah. you're still in your like very slowly, carefully give people controlled amounts of concentrated sodium back and think about clamping them. But I think if you're like in a walkie-talkie person and they're coming in and have this sodium problem that's keeping them in the hospital for some number of days before the end of their life. Like this can be a really helpful tool to shorten yeah. the hospital yeah. stay and get someone home. Yeah. You brought up a good point though. Yeah. Think how much education we set back when we give sodium. Yes. For we do. Yes. 3%. It's a different goal, but we've lose everything we taught them. Oh, it's a water problem. It's a water problem. It's a water problem. Well, we're going to get 3% here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have had run into this scenario about heart failure patients who are hypervolemic and you're diuresing them and they're hyponatremic and their sodium is still stuck in the one teens and then you know they're diuresing but they're not getting net negative maybe or just like half a liter a liter and so sometimes I'll give a little three percent and then the you know everyone kind of freaks out a little bit but you know I just I just want to get that there's, sodium up just just a little bit <laughs> there's good body of literature that three yeah. percent can be very helpful in heart failure patients you you're, you're well it, supported have, by I've never done Italian it. literature I've I have and have, yeah. have the rebuttal is like why don't you just do dialysis or just do CRT <laughs> I don't want my patient to get hypertonic saline like we're still ultimately the concept is the same right well, I don't know about that. I think it's different. There's something about giving 3% that suppresses... suppresses Changes uh, the neurohormonal milieu. Yeah, I mean, there's something very interesting about it. I haven't had the guts to do it. I'm dying to do it. I don't know if they'd let me do it. 
But the literature's really, it's pretty impressive, some of those papers. I, I do it, uh, Letty, it's fun, interesting that you bring it up, because I do it as the final yes. report before dialysis. I've kind of already committed, everybody's in agreement that we're going to do dialysis, mm-hmm. patient's in agreement. I said, let's try one last thing before we go there. And I like that because if <laughs> the patient gets volume overloaded and I'm in a mess, yes, yes. I've already got my out. But I've had a couple of successes. But I want Melanie to hate on electrolyte-free water clearance. <laughs> I want to hear No, it. I just... I just think it's, no, I just think that it's sort of like one of those things where we're flexing our muscles a lot to show off. I can geek out like the best of them. And I love getting 24 hour urine and calculating all sorts of things from it. It's really fun for me. But when I'm on the wards, I really like to be practical. And I think that there's a lot of things that you can glean from taking the history and talking with the patient and the data that you already have without having to pull this out of your toolbox. And I just feel like it's unnecessarily sort of, as I said, flexing your muscles. And, you know, just in in the same idea that, you know, when we talk about the mnemonic for non-gap acidosis and you have that whole list of things that you could rattle off, but you could also just take the history. And so if if the patient has um, SID and has a very, very low solute intake and the urinosome is really high, you're just not going to get anywhere with water restriction. And so by taking the history and gathering the clinical clues to understand how they got there, I think you can achieve most of the same. And maybe this is all just me as a sort of cover-up strategy because I'm really bad at math. But I, <laughs> I just I just try and be sort of practical and, uh, and think about the patient and, and what we can glean from that. Well, I think that also maybe you're just good at experience and it's performative to you, but for the rest of us, it's like a logic catch to make sure we don't miss anything, you know? Everyone else is socially mm-hmm. awkward and Melanie can actually talk to her patients and have a conversation with them. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah, no but, like but, I have a patient I'm following right now with very severe hyponatremia and, you know, at the bedside, I discovered that her diet is all vegetables and water and there's no protein in that diet. And so we have her on protein shakes now and and periodically she veers. So she just did her test this week and her sodium's worse again. And I called her husband and he's like, okay, you're right. We haven't been eating protein. We're going to go back out and get some protein. And then we ch- rechecked her sodium and it's better. So I don't know. I'm just yeah. I, I, I agree a hundred percent with you with the importance of history taken, and usually the answer is in the history eighty percent, eighty five percent of the times. A hundred percent on that. However, I do think that these equations are helpful for the trainee, for the early career nephrologist to help understand what's going on. You know, I'm not gonna expect you to make these calculations because you have managed these patients many, many times for many years. And you know I'm bad at math. (laughs) No, no, I mean, the example that I used uh, uh, a few minutes ago that I don't longer do this equation because I've done it enough that I know half of the urine is water in these patients with parenteral nutrition. Josh talked about uh, the ratio between urine sodium potassium and serum sodium which is i think also called the first ratio of thank you i was wanting to know who is dr first because that is that's really the crux of what we're using yes uh i know that he's a doctor by last name first that's all i know about him maybe german last name and just to clarify the first ratio is urine sodium plus urine potassium divided by serum sodium and if the ratio is greater than one you got 
wicked hypodatremia and you're going to have a hard time fixing it. And if it's less than one, they're clear and free water, electrolyte free water, and you have a hope of putting them on fluid restriction. That's correct. And and the point that I was going to make about having done this equation multiple times and having managed these patients is that typically these patients with rape and SIDH are going to have urinal spolalities that are pretty high, 500, 600. So the, you, looking at urinal spolality that is going to be ordered the minute you assess a patient with SIDH, you're kind of have already a ratio in front of you. You obviously will have to get a urine potassium and calculate it. But again, I am not discouraging to do. I think it should be done when you are learning to manage these patients. And as years go by, you get a good handle and experience helps to omit those calculations. So, so I think if folks are curious who Howard First is, he was a trainee at the University of Pennsylvania under Eric Nielsen when he was the dean there. Uh, Howard First is now like smarter than all of us because he left academia, left nephrology, <laughs> and runs like a venture capital group. Oh. Uh, he's like a partner in venture capital group. But but I think like the article, and we'll put this in the show notes, uh, the urine to plasma electrolyte ratio, predictive guide to water restriction. Again, the math is all the same as you see right here in the chapter. But I feel like I find that math more accessible for me. I find the urine to plasma electrolyte ratio a helpful tool in taking care of patients and in teaching, especially when I'm thinking about giving an ADH antagonist. I'll often ask for a set of urine electrolytes right before you give the ADH antagonist, like a, a tolbaptan, and then a set four or six hours later. And what you can see is that urine, that ratio goes from greater than one to a lot less than one. And it tells you you've gone from losing the battle of hyponatremia to winning the battle of hyponatremia. Again, it certainly has the problems that, that Leticia had pointed out. Like, you can definitely correct too fast if you're not careful. And for Tolvaptan people, you've got to give really clear instruction. The free water restriction is gone. This person gets to drink as much water as they want. We're letting the, the brakes off. We've got to record how much water they're putting, they're taking in and how much urine they're making. We've got to really be good about checking serum sodium in four hours and eight hours. And if we can get through that, that, that can be a really helpful tool to, to fix the problem and also to help teach how it's working. So, so JC's actually published a bit on, actually did most of the publishing on the speed of sodium correction with Tolvaptan. JC, do you want to just kind of speed do your conclusions there? Cause I think they're, I think they're super interesting. Yeah, no, Josh touched on most of the main points. And it's important to know first that this vasopressin receptor antagonists are indicated for not just SIDH, but also for heart failure. And those are completely different entities physiologically. The heart failure patient is not going to overcorrect. Remember, as Roger was mentioning earlier, these are patients who retain not only water, but sodium. They have uh, decreased GFR in, in many instances. The amount of water that is ultimately delivered to the collecting duct is much less compared to an SIDH patient who has decreased proximal reabsorption of water and delivers a lot of water distally. So when you come in with a suppressor receptor antagonist and block ADH, boom, water comes out like crazy. So that was the first point to make that, yes, overcorrection of what the vasopressin receptor antagonist can happen, but we're talking about SIDH specifically. And we look at the... The publication is remarkable because it's like 3% of the people with heart failure had overcorrection and a third of the people with SIADH had overcorrection. Like it was just, to me, it changed the way I used the drug. That when I when I had that heart failure patient, I 
pretty much didn't yeah. do everything that Josh was talking about to avoid the overcorrection. I was like, let it rip. It's going to be fine. And I reserve all those, per- the, all those care for that SIADH patient. That is correct. And they often get asked this question, oh, we're going to start talking about abdominal dissipation with heart failure. Should we go 7.5? I'm like, no, give 30 if you want to. That's so interesting. I'm always very cautious. Like, no, the lower dose. Not with heart failure. But SIDH, you have the right to be cautious, Letty, because that's a different ballgame, a different disease. We all start, we started, I think you, we both, well, you published on this and one of my fellows did a renal fellow network on basically saying the same thing. We started 7.5 for SIDH. Yeah. Seven and but you actually do 30 for CHF. Uh, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes mm-hmm. I do, yes. Uh, Makes total sense. Yeah. And that was and, the starting and, dose in the SALT-1 and SALT-2 trials is 30 milligrams. Am I right? No, it was it was 15, 15 but the 15. medium dose ended up being close to 30 for heart failure patients compared to the SIDH, gotcha. which most of them stay with 15. Of note, they also had a third of the patients had cirrhosis. That's correct. And, and this before they realized <laughs> yes, that, you know... Yes, had liver toxicity and was... Well, maybe, the liver. maybe liver yeah. toxicity. Yeah, and I'm just going to get on my, my soapbox right here and just say that the liver toxicity came from the ADPKD trials, the Tempo 3-4 trials, in which we were using 90 to 120 milligrams a day and for months on months. end. It is a very different situation. And and I think the other thing is, uh, JC, you have a COI with... Um, That's correct. I have a conflict of interest with Tolvapton. Uh, early on in my career, I was in the speaker bureau for Conivapton and moved on to Tolvapton. Uh, so yes, that's important to disclose. This is shocking me because like none of my patients can ever get Tolvaptin when they leave the hospital. So we'll go through the whole rigmarole and then it's done. So I kind of gave up on it. I don't use it at all. I use Torsamide. That's what I wanted to get at is that Josh pointed out, hey, we're losing the battle. And so I want to use a, a Vaptan. But you can also win the battle. You can change the nature of the urine with a loop diuretic. Melanie, talk a little bit more about that. Talk about torsamide. No, I just, and this, this gets to back to the fact that I really love calling the thick ascending limb the concentrating segment. Because if you block that, then you can't maximally concentrate your urine because you don't maximally concentrate the medulla. And so then the idea would be that since you don't maximally concentrate the medulla, then even if ADH is present, the urine osmolality will still will be roughly 285, 300, somewhere there. And the nice thing about that is you don't have to worry as much about how much water they're drinking. If they happen to also have hypertension, then this pairs nicely with their therapy. And so uh, I just find it easier to manage, less worries about insurance. And uh, and also then you can give them back a lot of potassium and that helps offset things. So I like that as well. So I'm a fan. Melanie, how do you do that clinically? Like, do you just have them come in weekly? Like how, how do you just check their labs really frequently or is there any well, I would typically have st- more commonly, but not always. I would have started it when they're in the hospital. But I'll, I'll, I have patients with SIDH. I'm treating as outpatients, and I'm, I'll start with low dose torsamide. And as their serum sodium comes up, depending on how much it comes up, we can liberalize their water intake. And I'll also do, you know, give them more solute, usually in the form of protein, protein shakes, or protein meal, and then potassium chloride if uh, supplements. My editorial piece here is, especially in SIADH, they're going to have a very low creatinine. And I think early on in my career, I was underdosing them with the loop diuretic. I was letting that low serum creatinine fool me. 
and I was underdosing. I think you really need to shut down that loop and you need to keep it shut down all 24 hours a day. So I'm dosing the torsamide twice a day. And I kind of think of what would be an appropriate dose for that creatinine. And then I double it. And I've had more success with that. And when you say that, you mean appropriate dose for if you're trying to diarese them just for edema or something. Right. So in general, the way I do, you know, I'm a, I'm a 20 times the serum creatinine to get a furosemide dose. And then I cut that in half to get a torsemide dose. But in this situation, I don't do the cut in half. So if they, right. So your patients should be complaining that they're peeing all day long. That's what you're going. No, I think that's a really good point because you see these creatins at 0.5 and you think, oh, you know, all they need is 20 of Lasix. And I haven't had great success. And you're probably right, Mm -hmm. Joel. That's a really good point. But I like, you know, I I always tell the the residents, you know, all the ADH in the world isn't going to do anything if there's not a, if there's not a concentration gradient. So it's a really, it's a really cheap way of treating uh, SIDH. But I think there's nothing like a Vaptan. It's, it's a beautiful thing. The osmolarity goes from 600 to 100 and it's finite. You know, yeah, Josh said you got to check them and worry about all this water. But I think, quite frankly, that's overreaction. I still do it. I understand. But it, it doesn't last that long. And I have people overcorrect, but I'm using seven and a half now as a starting dose. And, I, and only once have I had them overcorrect on seven and a half. But it's finite. They don't pee forever. I always make the point of checking urine osmolarity. You said urine lights, but probably better, but I just do a urine osmolarity before and after because there's nothing a better way to teach a resident what you're doing than they imagine what's going on. They're concentrated. I blocked this. They're peeing water. The serum sodium goes up. Their urine output goes up and it, it it's therapeutic and it's very educational. And I always use Vaptans whenever I can in the hospital for that. Sending them out on, what you send them out on, you know, maybe I should use higher doses of loop diuretics. I've been using a lot of urea and it's very popular and it has its merits. The problem with just eating more protein or a lot of hot dogs, it's calories. And that, you know, not, not everybody wants to do that either. So urea is calorie free and Lasix is calorie free. I was just going to say one thing I really loved about this chapter, even though it's short, but we're spending a long time on it, um, is he mentioned something that um, Melanie Roger mentioned in the last podcast is that there's two things that you need to make that concentrated urine, right? Like you need the medullary concentration gradient, and then you also need the collecting tubules to respond to ADH. So that way you're seeing that medullary concentration gradient. And, and that's basically what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about a loop to affect one side of it, the medullary concentration gradient, and then a VAPTAN to affect the collecting duct. So, But he mentions it multiple times in this chapter. I, I thought it was a really nice emphasis. Does that, I just put a a link in the chat. Can you guys see that? That's the, that goes from concentrated dilute that was just showing. Yeah, that's a that's a urometer with a patient on Conivaptan. This is when the drugs were first introduced. And we were like, yeah, is that awesome? So this is a, a nephrologist in New York City named Joshua Schwimmer. And he is the very first nephrology blogger. He had a blog called Kidney Notes. There's a super important little segment that, that I can say we're done. It's at the top of page 292. And I think this is like setting the, setting the stage. It says an understanding of the factors that influence the clearance of water has important clinical implications in patients with hyponatremia and hypoosmolality. Since the capacity for water excretion is normally so great, water retention leading to hyponatremia will occur only if there's a defect in water excretion, or rarely if the amount of water ingested exceeds excretory capacity. Diminished water excretion requires that one or both of the steps described above are impaired. This can occur in three settings. And what he says, he says, if less free water is generated because the rate of fluid delivery to the loop of Henle is reduced as with renal failure, 
or volume depletion. Two, if less free water is generated because sodium chloride reabsorption is inhibited by diuretics, particularly the thiazide-type diuretics. Or three, if ADH is present, as with effective volume depletion, syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion, or adrenal insufficiency. And here's the kicker. These disorders, along with primary polydipsia, in which there is a primary increase in water intake, constitute the entire differential diagnosis of true hyponatremia. And I just thought, he's like, we've laid out the mechanics. This is it. Here are the three situations. And I kind of was thinking, I was like, I just was going through my full differential of hyponatremia and categorizing them. Oh, that's a one. That's a two. That's a three. That's a one. That's a two. It's a really cool way to organize the thinking. And what I love it is it's so much of our hyponatremia is uh, the way the evaluation is kind of functional and diagnosis based. Oh, what's the volume status? And this is like, no, no, no. This is starting from the physiology and working outward rather than from an individual patient and working inward. I thought it was really Yeah, I love it too. And uh, it's interesting that the first uh, bullet refers to uh, renal failure, which could apply to AKI or CKD, because this could be one of the most underappreciated causes of hyponatremia in the hospital, in my experience. You have patients with some degree of AKI or CKD, and uh, your sodium is 131 or 130, 129, and, and you get that there was already a panel of tests ordered in, 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 on the computer that urine osmolality, urine sodium was ordered, trying to work up SIDH. They threw a cortisol level, they threw a TSH level. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what are we doing here, right? It's just, it's, it's just a patient with impaired kidney function and that continues to have water intake could easily go into a hyponatremic state. And I think that's uh, often missed in the hospital setting. Because it does, it doesn't fit the schema, right? If you yeah, have a it doesn't. Di- it doesn't fit the schema. It, it doesn't pop up in the, those algorithms, right? Yeah, I call I call those patients their beakers. You know, you pour water in, but it, it ain't coming out. <laughs> okay, I, I think I think we've beat this chapter to death. Is there anything else in this chapter that people wanted to talk about? I I love this chapter. I thought he did a brilliant job of laying these things out. Uh, this was to me just it was great. Well, I think this is the only chapter where he actually has an example, like a full example deep in the chapter. And that just illustrates what you've each been saying, that you that the free water clearance is sort of confusing when you talk about it conceptually. It really works when you have a patient there. I honestly, I couldn't be happier. I could talk about hyponatremia and sodium all day long. This really is. <laughs> well, I think we have a few more chapters where we yeah, can. We're going to be, we're, that's right. This is why, this, this is why the book's a masterpiece. There's lots of hyponatremia and Okay, guys, this was long but awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah, like I said, you know, 10 pages will get done in an hour. I think we have acid-base next. Yeah, acid-base physiology. Yeah, we have acid-base. I know, I'm a little excited. Oh, yeah. Same. This was really good tonight. I thought this was a really good one. Yeah, it's a great time.